Diane, 11.30 a.m. February 24th, entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. Never seen so many trees in my life. As W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. 54 degrees on a slightly overcast day, weatherman said rain. If you could get paid that much for being wrong 60% of the time, you'd be working. Mileage is 79,345, gauges on reserve. Riding on fumes here, I've got to tank up when I get into town. Remind me to tell you how much that is. Lunch was $6.31 at the Lamplighter Inn. That's on Highway 2 near Lewis Fork. That was tuna fish sandwich, slice of cherry pie, and a cup of coffee. Damn good food. And Diane, if you ever get up this way, that cherry pie is worth a stop. Okay, looks like I'll be meeting up with uh, a sheriff, Harry S. Truman. Shouldn't be too hard to remember that. He'll be at the Calhoun Memorial Hospital. Guess we're going up to the intensive care and take a look at that girl that crawled down the railroad tracks off the mountain. I'm pretty sure I'll be checking into a motel. I'm sure the sheriff will be able to recommend a clean place, reasonably priced. That's what I need, clean place, reasonably priced. Oh, Diane, I almost forgot. Got to find out what kind of trees they are. They're really something. Hello and good morning. Douglas Fur here, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. I've got good news. That gum you like is going to come back in style. And today, for episode number 171, it's happening again. You're going back, but not to Missoula, Montana, Twin Peaks, rather. Diane, today is actually Tuesday, February 10th, 2015, and I'm not going to talk about Judy. In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. We're going to keep her out of it. But in line with all the secrets that we shared last month, we'll get into a few more today, because she's filled with secrets. She's my cousin, but doesn't she look almost exactly like Laura Palmer? Today we share 42 Minutes with John Thorne, co-founder and co-editor of the Twin Peaks magazine, Wrapped in Plastic. Between October 1992 and September 2005, Mr. Thorne and Craig Miller produced some 75 issues of Wrapped in Plastic magazine. Together they wrote over one million words about Twin Peaks and about the works of David Lynch, Mark Frost, and others associated with the show as well as topics like The X-Files. And it was the final word on Twin Peaks with past issues including interviews with Mark Frost, Cheryl Lee, Michael Anderson, and even David Lynch himself. Although it seems like another lifetime ago, even I had a subscription and I treasured it. For more information about the work of Mr. Thorne, check out his blog at abovethestore.blogspot.com. It really, truly is a great honor to be sharing 42 minutes with Mr. Thorne today, and I imagine this will be the first of many shows in the coming months and year built upon the foundation of Twin Peaks. Hello, John. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Great, great. I'm going to start in a really strange place. Did you happen to listen to Serial? last year? Yes, I did. You yes, did? Yes, I did. I heard the whole thing. yeah. Yeah. And did that, I mean, I found it really creepy, but did, did, did it tickle you in some way? Um, well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I guess, uh, obviously, when you hear a story like that, you can't help but think of, uh, of Twin Peaks to a, to a small extent. But, I mean, that's true of almost any 
unusual murder of a young girl. I mean, there's been many, many stories like that since Twin Peaks has been on, and, uh, you know, sometimes they, they, their similarities are striking and makes you think of the show. But, um, uh, you know, my, my, you know, my, my thoughts of Twin Peaks evaporated very, very quickly as I kind of got caught up in the story of, uh, of the whole, uh, you know, event and, and aftermath. Yeah, but the the idea that there, I mean, listeners, if it, there's going to be spoilers in this, sh- <laughs> all over the place, <laughs> <Yeah>. just. <laughs> but the idea that there wasn't any real resolution to that either, I mean, so in Twin Peaks there definitely was. There came the moment when we knew who killed Laura Palmer, but in this, in this, like the first, the classic season, we don't really know what happened. Well, I mean, you know, I was not surprised by the ending of Serial. I expected it to end the way it did. I didn't expect for there to be some grand uh, resolution or revelation. It, uh, it it was real life, and real life is not uh, a tidy narrative that we see on TV or read in a book. Uh, it, it It's messy. It's, it's complicated. You know, it, it, I'm sure... Um, uh, you know, they, they kind of covered all of these details in the, in the podcast, but, uh, you know, I, I, again, I wasn't expecting any, any big resolution. It, it was intriguing on, on many, many levels. Uh, I think it had more to say about the judicial system and the way people are processed through and go on to trial and, certainly a lot to say about memory and how it fades and changes over time. So, I mean, you know, not to get too much into serial, uh, but uh, it was fascinating on a great many levels. And uh, sure, of course, I, you know, can't help but think of Twin Peaks every once in a while. But but then as someone with, you know, who's spent so much time in a in a world like Twin Peaks, where you are kind of involved with, you know, the idea of mystery, because... That's with David Lynch. There's so much symbolism and mystery. Did you did you come to any? Did you arrive at any position with Serial? Just as a final note. Um, you know, I kind of felt I kind of felt like I I had an opinion, uh, yeah, of what what really happened. Um, I mean, I can share it with you, but Please. you know, it's my opinion. I don't know what I, happened, and I. It, I, I think you know. Look, we only heard it through. We only heard it through the filtered uh, uh, presentation of serial, which was well, well done. I'm not taking anything away from it, but I, I think there was there was some really damning evidence that uh, Saeed, is it was that his first name? Uh, Adnan. Um, uh, he, that he that he did it, but again, as I want to certainly want to to. Uh, you know, preface that by saying we only heard, you know, the facts that were presented on Serial, and I'm sure there's plenty of other material out there that could be unearthed over time and might lead to a different different conclusion. The one thing that it's it's it was hard because with Serial that was real, and with Twin Peaks mm-hmm. it's not. So that mystery is fun. And and brutally real. So I think of a, a, the film Firewalk with Me, which might be the the scariest film that I've seen as far as what it presents. But then the fact that Serial 
this was real. This was a real case. I guess that's that's the difference where David Lynch is describing reality in its brutal frankness, whereas it, I don't I don't know. There's just that jump between the. Well, I mean, you know, you talk about serial and you talk about the investigation, and you get into the forensics and you get into the detail of of how an investigation is conducted, of how evidence is conducted, you know, gathered, how uh, uh, the process of trial and 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 law enforcement um, uh, is activated and proceeds. Whereas with Lynch, I mean, really, we're talking about art versus reality, and and Lynch. Uh, in Fire Walk with Me and in and Twin Peaks and certainly in all his other films, is certain is 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 very much interested in uh, you know the inner workings of the mind, the psyche, uh, perception, which is why there's so much dream uh, imagery and actual dream uh, material uh, in in all of his work. Um, I really think if you wanted to try to get right down to uh, a basic uh, 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 a concept of Lynch, it, it has a lot to do with um, an individual and how they are fighting against themselves in many respects to overcome them, their own drawbacks uh, to, uh, you know, achieve something you know, to break through. I, you know, I'll make that as generic as I can. Uh, and so, you know, there's a big difference between uh, the artistic uh, pursuits of David Lynch and the real-life uh, you know, case that we see in Serial. Okay, so we're talking about evidence and how it's gathered. And so that brings me to Special Agent Dale Cooper. And do you recall if the word synchronicity was ever uttered in Twin Peaks? Wow, uh, I can't say offhand. Uh, there may be uh, some place in there. Uh, I don't. I don't know well, that we, it we, is. We do know that the the, the 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 idea of synchronicity is expressed by Cooper in the first season when he says two two events, two unrelated events occur simultaneously, or two events that are pertaining related. to the, the same object of inquiry. We must That's pay it. strict attention. Right. So yes. that is perhaps the concept of synchronicity. Oh right yeah, there. yes, definitely. Uh, so I, while the word itself is not uh, is not perhaps used, and again I could be wrong. I've forgotten an awful lot over the many years, but um, certainly the idea is uh, is in the forefront, um, particularly in that first season, and, and pertaining to the character of Cooper and intuition and all of those aspects. Well, I mean, that's kind of, in a nutshell, what this program likes to play with, is this idea of meaningful coincidence. And so just by way of illustration, last night I went to Slater Kinney. They just happened to be in town, and Slater Kinney was really coming on the scene in the in the mid-'90s when I was also you know, watching Twin Peaks. So, like, these right. things... Right. Connect. Yeah. But then sure. to take it one more level into the strange land, you've got Carrie Brownstein, who's in Portlandia, and <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin right. is the mayor of Portlandia. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, you do see an awful lot of those kinds of strange things occur um, when you're watching, particularly, I mean, there's a lot of TV shows and stuff that, 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 
you know, you have Ray Wise playing the devil in, um, oh, I forget the name of that show. It was, it was a good show. Um, it was on a couple of years ago. The, the guy is having to fight the demons for the devil. I don't know if you recall that show. I don't. Um, uh, but Ray Wise was the devil, and he had that great demonic look about him. And you're you're immediately, and I think it took place in the Pacific Northwest. And you're immediately, yeah, I think it was supposed to be Seattle. So you know, <laughs> you're immediately reminded of Twin Peaks, and there's a perfect connection. Uh, and you know, I see I see it a lot. Uh, you see an actor pop up, or you see a couple of actors from the show pop up in the same show and then it, it, it X Files was similar. You'd see a number of the uh the uh Twin Peaks actors, so this is very, very close to the show, but a number of the Twin Peaks actors would pop up in that series. Of course that series is about the FBI investigating the uh the supernatural. So um strange the way there seems to be almost um um a repetition, a, a circularity, these these things come around again. And we see the actors playing similar characters in somewhat similar situations. <laughs> so. Right. And in that vein, so, you know, there are those materialists who would say, you know, oh, they're, they're typecast. You know, they have a certain role that a director understands that they can do. And so they're typecast. They play the same role yeah. again and again. But it doesn't ex- explain – and so – in our world, we think more along the lines of archetype cast, where somehow they're embodying an archetype that they can't help but sometimes communicate, that it's part of their yeah, act, yeah, sure. actor DNA. And so yeah, you think yeah. of like an actor like David Bowie, right? who was Jareth in uh, Labyrinth, and then he plays uh-huh. this just enigmatic, bizarro role in Firewalk With Me, but then he's also Nikolai... Tesla in the Prestige, which yeah, sure. brings in that electricity element of this <laughs> kind of trickstery, underworldly, devilly kind of. What yeah. do you what do you yeah. what do you think of that? Like the idea of. Well, I think you I, I think you struck on it somewhat. You, you, you know, there's a certain affect that actors, particular actors, have a certain um, presentation that they give, and you see David Bowie. There's an ethereal quality to him. From his music to his stage performance uh, to the way he uh, presents himself on screen, and I think uh, directors and, and casting directors, you know, they have a particular character in mind. Uh, you know, they think, well, you know, that sounds like David Bowie. So let's see if we can get David Bowie. I mean, if David Bowie were 25 years younger, I'd say he'd be the perfect casting. For a Neil Gaiman Sandman, he'd be perfect to to take on Morpheus, I think, uh, because he has that sort of um, sort of, a, a, an otherworldly feel to kind of make it a cliche. And so I think that other actors do that. Ray Wise, you know, he he can really create that that sort of um, uh, evil under the surface look about him. And, and but there's a there's a playfulness about him. There's a a quality where he's 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 almost like the Joker in Batman. In fact, he'd be a great Joker uh, in in some version of Batman somewhere along the line. You know, whether they were to do it on TV or something. So anyway, without getting into more specifics, I think you know there's certain people who do exude a certain quality and uh, find themselves sometimes to their chagrin in the same role over and over again. And sometimes I think they are perfect for certain roles and ideal 
uh, you know, ideally cast in those. Yeah, and so what? <laughs> it's funny after watching the trajectory of Kyle McLaughlin, what do you think the return of him into that Cooper role will be like? Well, you know, I um, I think it'll be great. I don't have any doubt at all that it will be great. And I don't know if you've been watching his performances in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series, but he's doing a fantastic job there. You know, I've seen him do a lot of different stuff, uh, you know, playing the naive detective in, in certain shows, playing, uh, you know, just the house husband. Uh, I just caught him on uh, How I Make Your Mother Repeat the other day, uh, uh, you know, playing kind of a silly sitcom character. But in S.H.I.E.L.D., he's playing this, this rather evil uh, character, uh, and, but he's got a certain, um, uh, I don't want to say playful because that's not right, but he's, he's uh, um, there's a silliness or a, or a, or a jocularity to, to the way he's playing the character. He's doing a fantastic job there. I mean, he's just, he's just inhabiting that character. And I have a feeling that that's part of what we might see in, in the, the series if, in fact, we do uh, continue with... Uh, you know, Cooper or the evil side of Cooper loose in the world and that that, that plot line, you know, needs to be resolved. Uh, will he, will he have, will he show, display those, those, uh, those evil tendencies that, you know, dark side, uh, he's going to do great. He's going to do just great and I can't wait to see it. Yeah, me too. I mean, in, in thinking back, I think that's one of the reasons why I loved Cooper so much is that he was so, serious you know business like disciplined but then right. every once in a while they just out of the, out of the blue like go grab someone's nose and go yeah <laughs> right yeah right yeah. right and now of course a lot of that was lynch and a lot of that was lynch you know uh figuring out how that character would sort of respond in in the world uh and you know making that character stand out uh, really, really beyond, you know, most other TV detectives. Um, you know, without getting into detail, I, I don't want to. I don't want to waste your time. But I mean, you see the Cooper character change over time during the series. Um, he loses a lot of that that quirky quality uh, as we get into the second season. I think Lynch himself expressed that. He said, you know, Cooper kind of is less than Cooper. And, uh, you know, Lynch restores a lot of that in the later part of the second season. Huh. So I really think Lynch had a very distinct um, view of, of how Cooper would behave. And that, you know, he working with McLaughlin so closely, he's able to really kind of pull that, that special character uh, out of that, uh, you know, that situation. Here's a contentious point that I've argued with other people at various times. With Lynch... He was a painter and a, a visual artist, and so there's an argument to be made that everything symbolically means something, that the, everything in the frame is there intentionally. I don't think that's a contentious point at all. I think that's very, very Some real. people want to say, no, this doesn't mean anything. This is just some trippy stuff that David Lynch well, thought okay, looked yeah, cool. I mean, well, I mean, okay, yes, but that still doesn't mean – I mean – I would I would be careful to say that everything is completely thought out, that it has some very specific meaning and there's a symbolism to it. I would not go that far. 
But I would say that um, when Lynch is composing a shock, that it has to have a certain quality to it, a certain balance to it, a certain, uh, you know, it, it has to be, it has to have the right items in it and not in it. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm very certain of this, uh, having spoken with uh, Frank Silva, who of course played Bob, but who was also set dresser on a number of Lynch works, and he described how Lynch would dis- describe what he wanted to see in a scene, um, you know, how he would want a, a, a shot set up and what he wanted to see in, in you know, uh, in the picture. And so that was, you know, that was very telling when he talked about that. And the other thing I point out, you know, uh, sometimes when you see a still from a film, uh, you're struck by the composition that you don't maybe sometimes see when you're watching the film as it moves. And this gets back to what you were describing as Lynch, the painter. Uh, there's a there's a shot um, in Fire Walk With Me uh, where Chet Desmond is talking to... Uh, Sheriff Bullock in the, uh, uh, it is Bullock, right? I'm trying to remember now. The, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me. I do sometimes forget the character name. Um, in the Deer Meadow sequence, the beginning of um, a Fire Walk With Me, there's this fascinating shot of the two of them. Uh, we're, we're to the side of them. They're facing one another. And on the wall behind them is a giant wooden saw, the old kind that would take two men to to use to cut down a tree. And it's hanging on the wall. And one end is right lined up with Jack Desmond's face. And the other end is right lined up with the sheriff's face. And you can obviously tell that Lynch was very, very deliberate in that he wanted to have that line connect their heads. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. It's worth going back and studying those single shots in various films and seeing Lynch's composition, seeing the deliberateness of why he he put certain objects in. Does the saw itself have any particular meaning? I don't know. But did he want to use something to connect their heads? I would say yes. Yeah. And then after you say something like that immediately, there's several shots in the actual TV, sh- you know, in Twin Peaks that comes to mind with, with Ben Horn with horns and, yes. you mm-hmm. know, bears looming over Josie. Right. You, you know, oh, sure. Yeah. And then... If you talk about shots, you know, the the one that really is iconic in my mind is when they go to the cabin in the woods and the whole party lines up in a row, the music's playing, and then you see Mm -hmm. all their faces in a row for this moment. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And uh, I know I've read somewhere, it was either in the new Brad Duke's book or somewhere, uh, the difficulty in getting that shot, that particular shot where all four of them sort of move forward into the frame and they're lined up. They're getting the focus right so that it would work. Yeah. Currently, it was tricky. Tricky thing to do. Well, and then so that leads me into, you know, the difference between the mystery of nineteen the 1990s versus now. It's so funny because when I watch the show, you, you forget that phones are connected to the wall and that <laughs> Agent Cooper's got this weirdo calculator thing that's kind of predicting mm-hmm. things to come mm-hmm. in the future. Right, right. And then the, just the idea that there's no internet. So back when you were making a magazine, that was all we had. 
You know, you watch the show. I, I create timelines and notes and try and figure out what's going on. And then you find a resource and it's like, wow, there are other people out there. And now you just yeah. Google, you Google Twin Peaks timeline and there's right. a, a thousand pages with insight. Oh, sure. Oh, I mean, that's, I mean, there's no doubt that we we benefited putting wrapped in plastic out. Well, I, mean, I guess probably never would have put wrapped in plastic out if there was no if there was an internet. I mean, there's you know, nobody's putting out fan magazines anymore. It's all you know websites and blogs and Facebook pages and you know there's just that's that's the new technology. So uh, you know we we were we were we were there as the internet began really began and started to permeate the culture. Uh, uh, permeate society is a better way of saying it. Um, so, uh, so anyway, I don't know. Is your question about well, how will the new series incorporate new technology, or is it just a comment on you know the old series and, and sort of the <laughs> more primitive technology? It's just that time has really gotten away from us. I think. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, but somebody, I was talking to somebody uh, a couple months back, and, and we were commenting on some of the criticism, well, not actually the criticism, but concern that Twin Peaks couldn't exist in a post-9-11 world. And I, I thought that was just crazy. I was like, what, what does that mean in post-9-11 world? Twin Peaks was, Twin Peaks was otherworldly in many ways. I mean, the characters themselves say Twin Peaks is a long way from the world. It wasn't, it wasn't concerned too much with what was happening in the world outside. It was concerned what was happening in the world right around them. And so, you know, that argument, Twin Peaks couldn't exist in a nine, post-9-11 world, is silly. Twin Peaks existed in a post-Cold War world. Twin Peaks existed in a post-JFK assassination world. I and mean, what does it matter? You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter what happened out there. What matters is what's happening in this sort of that insulated little place. I still think they'll be able to capture that sense of isolation, of remoteness in the series, even though there's an internet, even though there's cell phones and iPhones and, you know, access to anything you want. Um, I don't doubt that they will be able to convey still the idea of being in a unique and somewhat remote place. And that's key to, I think, the whole Twin Peaks atmosphere. Yeah, and now that I think about it, I mean, in the in the film, he almost alludes that electricity and modernity somehow is this layer of otherworldliness, where the monsters are coming from, kind of. Yeah, yeah, hard to say. I mean, clearly the film is fascinated with electricity. The idea, maybe that 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 whatever spirits are are in the world now are moving through the wires or, tra- you know, transporting themselves through some sort of electrical current, but. You know, Lynch doesn't spell it out, and that was just sort of a way, I think, of of grappling with technology to some extent, and 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 sort of the otherworldly, mystical, uh, and finding a way to maybe combine them so that they are the same. Right, and so in terms of paranormal, and you're talking about something existing. In a post-9/11 world, I mean, I I think that most things can't exist without Twin Peaks. That it's the thing that kind of opens the doors to everything that is now. That you can't have a, a Lost unless you had a Twin Peaks. You can't have X Files unless you have a Twin Peaks. 
But my uh, well, well, I'm just going to say. I mean, obviously, you know, that comment's been made many times about you know Twin Peaks. We couldn't have a loss without Twin Peaks. Couldn't have a X Files without Twin Peaks. I think, I think there's certainly a, a, a grain of truth to that. I think those shows would have would have existed um, without Twin Peaks. I just think Twin Peaks sort of sort of certainly upped the stakes a great deal. Um, it scared a lot of people because, like, what if we screw up? Because let's be honest, you know, they kind of messed up uh, in the second season of Twin Peaks. Uh, but that wasn't entirely their fault. The, the production team was, it was dealing with that crazy network structure that you have to work with when you're trying to tell, when you're trying to make art in a commercial medium. Um, Lost ran into that. I mean, they hit that with like a brick wall. And they were struggling to work around that. Um, that's why I think so many of the, the more successful uh, pieces of art, uh, television art, are on cable. I mean, you know, uh, True Detective, for example, is a, is a spectacular show that succeeds because it didn't have those uh, those commercial restraints. But uh, anyway, without getting too far afield, um, I think Twin Peaks set the bar very high. I think a lot of people were like, oh, you know what, let's, Let's you know try something different and a little more bizarre now. So certainly it opened the door for that. Uh, but more significantly, I would say that the current crop of creative talent in Hollywood, a great great portion of them, grew up watching Twin Peaks. Were inspired by Twin Peaks. Were were turned on by Twin Peaks. And you see, I think some of that coming uh, into play now. It's sort of like that was the show that made me want to work in television or film. I want to aspire to that. That's a great thing that Twin Peaks did. Hmm. Yeah. And then it touched on so many different themes, UFOs, ghosts, mysticism. My favorite episode is when Cooper's throwing rocks and talking about Tibet. Yep. Uh, but then in a, in a concrete literal society like we live in, you can argue whether or not Bob was real. You know, who killed Laura? Was it a monster? Was it her dad? Was it both? And, and, you know, there's, what do you, what do you say to a question like that? Well, I mean, that, that is a very, very good question. And I think that is a question that, the new series is going to have to address and perhaps come down on one side or another. Um, the film Firewalk with Me, which I think Lynch at a certain point in, in the creation of that film really decided he had to make it a self-contained work, that it, that it, was, it needed to sort of stand all by itself. And in order for that to happen, there had to be an ambiguity over whether or not Bob was a true uh, demonic spirit, you know, presence, or whether or not he was a creation of Laura's imagination so that she could heal herself from, from the reality of, of, of the terrible things that were happening to her. And I think he introduced that idea into the film so that you could come away saying, well, you know, there is no... There's no spirit named Bob, there's, there's just this terrible tragedy that, that, you know, we see the manifestation of her, uh, of her despair 
uh, and we see it literal on the screen, uh, the, the series steered much closer to it saying, you know, it was truly a, uh, it was supernatural, it, you know, they came from another world, they they came in through, through a portal to Twin Peaks, uh, so um, I think the show is going to have to say, yeah, I, I, I mean, if I had to pick, it's really hard to, to move away from it. You know, it's hard to say that it's not supernatural, that it's all just in, it's all symbolic and in her mind. It, there's enough there to say that there is something otherworldly going on, uh, that it has invaded our world, that different people are coping with it in different ways, experiencing it in different ways. And so uh, I think the new series is going to have to address that and uh, perhaps, you know, settle it and say, yep, this is what the deal is. <laughs> well, could you catch us up? You know, it seems like when I first saw the final episode of this, the second season, it was almost like he intentionally blew it up and walked away. And I think I've come to terms and, and really enjoy the end of it as it uh -huh. was, but it did leave a lot of dangling things. Sure. Well, uh, um, well, what's your question? You want me to to th tell you what I think of the, the last episode? Or <laughs> sure, what? the last episode, was... and then so uh, where do we stand? Cooper, we don't know. He might be. A doppelganger, Audrey Horn possibly dead, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, okay, I think, you know, here's what you have happening in that situation. You have Frost and Peyton, uh, Carly Peyton and Robert Engels, writing a script very much out of a TV tradition. They want to create cliffhangers uh, for various reasons, one of which was sticking it to the network a little bit and saying, look, you know what, if you want to you see the resolution, you know, we're going to have angry fans. They want to see a resolution. You better renew us. Ah. So all of the economic, you know, factors that are going into play as they produce this story. Um, Lynch comes in to direct it. And I can say with fair certainty, having read, you know, interviews with Lynch and, and, and immersed myself in, in so much of what happened there, that Lynch was, you know, just not happy at all with how Cooper was being presented in that final episode. And so he created a new, basically a new sequence where Cooper goes in to the lodge uh, or, or red room or whatever we want to call it, uh, confronts his own inadequacies, fails, is divided into two, and his darker side emerges victorious. That's how I would interpret it. I think there's enough evidence to interpret it, and Lynch himself has actually said Cooper did not get possessed by Bob uh, only part of him that he's with Bob, and so uh, so. But anyway, getting again, I'm getting way off off track here. I think so. What happened was Lynch was was stuck though with the inability in that short amount of time to resolve all of the different plot lines, or to at least to address them in a way that maybe he felt satisfied himself. So he had to give you know the the, uh, the, the cliffhanger of Audrey getting blown up, the cliffhanger of um, you know. Uh, uh, Benjamin Horn hitting his head on the table yeah. and various other things that were all just sort of less suspended. We don't know the face of these characters. I think he didn't really care that much about some of those. And I certainly don't mean to say Audrey was a lesser character, but she was a lesser character uh, in terms of Cooper. And Cooper was what 
Lynch was interested in in that last episode. And that's where he spent his time and, and effort to try to create something that was satisfying to him. And that there is, in, in a sense, a, a, there, I think very much a, a, a conclusion uh, with what Lynch presents. That there is actually an ending to in that last episode, and that is that Cooper failed. Cooper, uh, you know, Hawk says to Cooper in an earlier episode, you're going to go into the Black Lodge, you're going to confront you know, if you don't have perfect courage, you're, you know, it's going to consume your soul or something to that effect. And, um, and, and he didn't have perfect courage. Uh, Cooper went in with imperfect courage and he failed. And that was, that was how Lynch left it. You know, Agent Cooper did not succeed. He was not Superman. He, he, he failed. Uh, I don't think Lynch wanted it to be forever over, but if he had to end it, at least he had something that he could say, okay, we tied it up. And so, Anyway, I'm going on and on, but uh, <laughs> that I think Lynch's approach to the work, uh, and he was constrained by, of course, this script that he was presented with. He couldn't avoid certain parts of it that had to, you had to be there. So then, by 25 years later, coming at it again, do you think Cooper's failure becomes some kind of redemption, or do we just understand? The failure. Well, I, I, you know, he addresses Cooper again significantly in Father Walk with Me, and one could say that Cooper succeeds to a great extent in that he uh, successfully guides Laura uh, through the, her travails and uh, allows her to find a path to um, peace and uh, um, happiness. So there is that element uh, of Cooper there, the, uh, the good the good Dale Cooper, who's trapped in the lodge, uh, manages to succeed. And so he, uh, unlike the other Cooper, uh, and it, gets very, it gets very tricky and very complicated here because there are essentially three Coopers we're talking about. The whole Cooper, where he's merged, good and evil. The bad Cooper, whom we only see briefly at the very end of the series. Um, Where's Annie? Uh, who, Where's Annie? Exactly. And that's, I consider, not a doppelganger uh, and not a possessed Cooper, but the evil side of Cooper who escaped the lodge. You see the two Coopers racing to the exit in the final episode, and one succeeds. Only one can get out. The bad Cooper got out. The good Cooper is trapped. And so, so you have, so that's the third one, the good Cooper who is trapped. I think the series, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be watching it with great, you know, uh, attention. Uh, how have, have, have Lynch and Frost changed over the 25 years? Do they perceive it differently? Are they interested in viewing Cooper and some of the other events in a different light? Or are they really aware of, of, of the you know, specificity that was placed there in terms of what happened to Cooper? And do they address that? Uh, um, I'm optimistic but I am concerned. I hope that what we... And Lynch directing it, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be a wonderful thing, but how much of it will potentially revise what came before? That's where we're, where we're, <laughs> we're perhaps open to, uh, to some surprises. As a final note, did you have any sense this was coming? And then what does this mean for you as someone who's <laughs> produced so much Twin Peaks-related media? Well, uh, first of all, no. The first the answer to your first question is no. I had no idea. I, I truly, truly never thought we'd see 
uh, Twin Peaks again. I mean, and partially because of what Lynch said in the past, you know, he would he was done. He said it's dead, it's done, it's we're never going to go back again. So those things, you know, were were seemed pretty definitive. Uh, uh, and but you know, uh, I think the changing television landscape and uh, the ability for Lynch to have a little more creative control without network influence and then Frost interest somehow they they came together. Uh, so, um, so, so what does it mean to me? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they're not, there, there could be something new for me. I do have some ideas. There's a few things I'm working on. There won't be, I doubt very much there'll be a printed wrapped in plastic. A lot of people have said to me, please do it again, you know, print it and send it out. Well, the economics of that and the work involved in that, um, are, are not, uh, conducive to, to, to putting that out. Uh, and of course, Craig's not here anymore, which is a terrible shame. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's basically, you know, all on me to figure out what to do with it. Um, I, I'd like to take some of the material from the existing wrapped in plastic, those million words you talked about, and somehow reprint it in a new format, maybe, that, that will be available for people who want to remind themselves about Twin Peaks or people who are brand new to it and saying, oh, you know, here's a resource for me to find out more about it. Again, there's the internet. And so anyone can go and do that without a book or a magazine, but still the material's there and uh, maybe, maybe I can make something of it. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with oh. us. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to John Thorne on SyncBook Radio, a production of the SyncBook.com. Information about the work of Mr. Thorne can be found at abovethestore.blogspot.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42 Minutes and consider becoming a member. Thank you so much. And Diane, it struck me again earlier this morning, there are two things that continue to trouble me. And I'm speaking now not only as an agent of the Bureau, but also as a human being. What really went on between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys, and who really pulled the trigger on JFK?